Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about rape culture on college campus. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Heather Surency. Heather uses she, her pronouns and has been working in the area of campus violence prevention for more than 15 years. After receiving her master's degree in public health from the University of South Carolina, she began her work as a health educator at a large university in the Southeast. It quickly became apparent to Heather and her colleagues that sexual violence was a prevalent problem on campus that needed to be addressed. Needing training, support, and resources, Heather paired up with the Women's Center on her campus and applied for and received a VAWA campus grant to implement a survivor advocacy and violence prevention initiative. Through this work, Heather has conducted numerous trainings with students, staff, faculty, and campus community partners in the area of violence prevention. Heather has recently joined the Title IX staff at Rollins College in the role of violence prevention educator and continues to work directly with students implementing violence prevention programming. So Heather, thank you so, so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. And I also have returning Jessica Baker. Jessica uses she, her pronouns and is a victim advocate at UCF Victim Services since 2018. Prior to her current role, Jessica was a victim advocate at the state attorney's office in the Ninth Judicial Circuit working in the domestic violence unit's felony division. She believes survivors and values a survivor's right to choose the path they walk after any trauma abuse or victimization. So Jessica, thank you as well for coming back onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this discussion. I am too. I I think this is a really important topic. Um, And it's one that I think we, you know, we've referenced rape culture a lot on this podcast, but we haven't actually delved into it. So today we will be talking about rape culture specific examples of it and how it can look on college campuses, barriers college-aged survivors may have when it comes to reporting or sharing their story, 
and ways we can help combat rape culture. So with that, like I mentioned, um, we haven't been able to really dive deep and, and define rape culture yet on this podcast. So how would you, just to start off, how would you define rape culture? I would define it as a society or even environment um, if we want to get closer to individualize it where the prevailing attitudes um, have the effect of normalizing and trivializing sexual assault and abuse. You know, I really think that um, in rape culture, the attitude is that it's the victim's responsibility not to get raped versus the attitude that it's the perpetrator's responsibility not to commit a crime. So to me, that's kind of what we think of with rape culture. It's really looking um, at what the victim is doing. Um, and blaming this person for any crimes committed. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's a huge topic, rape culture. It's, it's got a lot of different facets to it. I, I also know the, the word culture can kind of conjure up this idea that it might just exist in a certain location or geographical location. So do you think that rape culture is universal? Well, I think rape culture is a product of this kind of social construct of a society, um, especially in terms of gender role and power. So I do think that it is uh, universal in a patriarchal society that diminishes gender equality. Um, So to me, rape culture kind of shapes how people determine what is believable, what is not, what is the norm within a particular culture. Um, So I think in American culture, for example, stranger rape, Um, might be more universally accepted as being the fault of the perpetrator. However, for example, in some Middle Eastern countries, that would not be a commonly accepted thought. So I think really the culture determines what is acceptable behavior and what is not. um, And the culture kind of um, looks at uh, how people are treated, both the perpetrators and um, the victims. So I don't think that it's universal, because if it was, then we couldn't take steps to to address it. Um, But I do think, as I said, that it is universal in terms of societies that really have gender inequality. Yeah, I I would echo what Heather said. I think she really gave a a great answer for that. I think that when we look where there's oppression for women, I think we're going to find rape culture. You know, rape is an act of violence against women. And we see violence against women as a global issue, right? With the World Health Organization, they indicate that globally about one in three, so 30% of women worldwide have been subjected to either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. And rape has been used as a weapon of war, oppression throughout history. It's been used to degrade women and their communities and even for ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, So I think this is more than just a community problem. It's a global, global concern. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both so much. I, I, I like what you were both kind of referencing here and the fact that there's different manifestations of it, depending on the culture, right. Um, within rape culture. So with that, are there any kind of examples that come to mind immediately? I know Heather, you mentioned specifically victim blaming. I don't know if there are any other examples that kind of come to mind as far as examples of this phenomenon of rape culture. Yeah, I think we probably could have 
a list that just continues. Um, some that I have here that kind of came to my mind that saying, you know, boys will be boys. So trivializing, trivializing sexual assault, sexually explicit jokes, um, any type of the inf inflating of those false report statistics. I think that we hear that often. Any type of weaponizing a victim's clothing, their mental health, their motives, right? She's a scorned woman. Um, she's, it's, you know, I hear that uh, sex you regret is not rape. We hear that a lot. Um, and anything with, you know, defining manhood, those gender norms of being dominant or sexually aggressive, right? When you think of words that have to do with having sex, they're mostly aggressive verbs, um, you know, or even sports terms. It was a home run. Um, men are pressured to score. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's really embedded within the culture as far as how rape is used or identified. Um, and Heather mentioned this earlier, putting it on the victim of protecting themselves with the victim blaming, right? So we teach women how to stay safe instead of teaching men not to rape. I agree with Jessica. Um, I think also the hypersexualization, both of men and women, um, are another issue that, again, we could probably have a whole podcast on those types of things. Um, but I'll give you an example. I have a teenager who has a VR headset um, and could not find a character that was not a hypersexualized woman um, in some of the places that, um, that they were playing in. So, I mean, we see this in the video games and music, uh, movies, you know, this hypersexualization of women, but then also of men and keeping men kind of in that hyper masculine um, uh, gender box uh, that I think also in increases um, chances of them subscribing to a lot of these rape myths and, and promoting the culture. I love the term gender box. It's actually a passion of mine to talk about gender boxes. I don't know if you would be able to just give a really quick definition of what gender boxes are, Heather. Sure. So I think it's the stereotype um, of what it is to be masculine, of what it is to be feminine. Um, and that culturally, when people try to step outside that very rigid box, um, they're often pushed back in. So for men, to kind of follow up on what Jessica said earlier, um, you know, there's a lot of terms that we associate with being feminine in our culture. And those are the words that are used to push men back in the box. Um, so we are again attacking women by using women's body parts or other things like that to put them back into kind of that masculine box. And the same can be true for women. Um, so really the box is just uh, defined by society of what it is to be masculine and what it is to be feminine. Um, I will say though, I think we're seeing many people breaking out of that and saying, I'm non-binary, I'm not in a box. I am myself. So I, I love that we're seeing a lot of progress in this area, but I do think that especially um, subconsciously those boxes still exist. Absolutely. For many of us. Yeah. I, and I, and I wanted to echo that too. The, the, there's of course people who are gender non-conforming who are really flipping the script as so to speak about these gender boxes, but essentially, yes, they, they um, can be really damaging for a lot of different reasons. 
And, and, and yeah, and thank you both so much for this robust definition of rape culture in general. And like I mentioned, it is a huge topic and involves a lot of different moving parts. So with that, I think it would be helpful for us and for the sake of this conversation to examine just specific parts of rape culture and how it can look specifically on college campuses. So with that, what is victim blaming? So we talked a little bit about it. So it's putting blame on the victim, but how does it, how can it manifest on college campuses specifically? Yeah, I mean, with, with victim blaming, we have really kind of defined it. It's the devaluing act, right? That occurs when the victim of the crime is held responsible, even in whole or part of what has happened rather than the actual perpetrator. Um, so from my perspective here at UCF, um, we see it manifest on campus in many ways. Um, a lot of times you'll see putting the perpetrator's needs or future ahead of the victim, um, as if the victim is less important than this bright future this offender has ahead of them. So putting the needs of, of the offender ahead. Um, I've had clients talk to me about being asked those why questions which are those accusatory questions, right? Why were you there? Why were you alone? Just those why, 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 why? Um, and then the should statements are really powerful as well because the should really imposes that judgment onto a survivor. Um, well, you should have done this or I would have done that or you should feel like this. Um, so again, placing accountability more on the survivor's actions um, and ownership of the situation than actually on the offender. Um, if we're looking at these incidents as more offender focused, why did the offender do this? Why, why did that happen this way? Should the offender have done this? Those types of changing the perspective, but when we're looking at it through a lens of victim blaming, it's going to be all placed on why the victim did this. Um, we also see it when they do disclose and they're not believed by their friends, their family, their faculty, you know, their faculty, even the police, again, placing ownership on the victim to prove they're credible instead of placing the ownership again on the, the perpetrator of the crime. So it's creating this almost impossible scenario of a victim having ownership of their safety and their protection. And when that is breached by the offender committing the assault, the victim, therefore, did not hold up their end of the agreement, right, to keep themselves safe, so they must be at fault. Um, so that's really how we, I've seen it here at UCF. I would say also, I think um, that it's really scary when there is an act of sexual violence that occurs on a campus. Um, and I feel like sometimes if we can blame the victim, then it makes other people feel safer, um, that it's really not a community-wide problem. Um, and that if we can target in on one or two behaviors, then um, everyone is not at risk. But of course, we know that's not true. Um, we know that until all women are safe, um, all women are at risk for sexual violence. And we know that until all men are safe, that all men are at risk for sexual violence. So I do think sometimes it's also can be a kind of psychological coping mechanism um, that for some people, it's they don't want to admit that it really is a societal problem that also affects our college campuses. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you both sharing your perspectives on that from, you know, UCF is 
that really large campus and then Rollins being that smaller one. But of course you come from a lot of different experience too, Heather, but uh, I appreciate you bringing to the question of, you know, why do we victim blame? And, and I do think that, yeah, there is this idea that it, it, it makes us feel like, well, if I don't dress that way, or if I don't do that, then I won't um, be victim victimized and things like that. And really there is no clothing or in any action that someone can do that, um, that asks to be sexually assaulted. Um, it should always be put back on the perpetrator, but it's, it's, and it's important for us to kind of see, you know, where, where does it coming from? Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, Jessica, as far as why you think we do victim blame. Oh yeah. I think, there's a couple theories as to, you know, why it comes up for us the way that it does. But, you know, the, the just world hypothesis is, I think, what you guys are kind of touching on here that um, it's a belief that we carry that the world is safe and it's just and people get what they deserve, right? Good people have good things that happen to them and bad people have bad things that happen to them. So, therefore, you know, if if something bad has happened to somebody, we are desperately searching for the reason they deserved what they got. And if we um, blame them for it, it just solidifies that our belief system that this world is just and fair is intact. So I think it also has to do with, um, we've also talked about what other faults and, and why we blame them and is it choices that they made so that again, if we don't make those same choices, we're then not vulnerable to it. Well, um, she was out late at night and that's why it happened. I would never be out late at night, so it won't happen to me. So therefore I'm distanced from the assault or the type of victimization. Um, so again, it's, I think it's just us trying to protect on this not being close to us and this could not happen to us when we know statistically it happens to everyone. Um, but it is just, I think, these belief systems that people hold so deeply to keep themselves safe. And that's what we need to change. Yeah, I think um, it can actually be counterintuitive to keeping us safe because if we believe in victim blaming statements and things like that, we actually aren't addressing what sexual violence is, which is a crime of power and control. And therefore we're not really understanding it. We're not able to, to come at it from a preventative sense, you know, teaching people more um, about sexual violence and consent and things like that. How else can victim blaming kind of perpetuate sexual violence do you think on, on college campuses? You know, it's it's not only just blaming as far as maybe it's with who automatically comes to mind as far as reporters, you know, um, but we see it a lot with friends and family where, you know, um, they take the side of the perpetrator or they remain neutral, which again will just... Um, it breeds that type of culture where it's accepted. Um, and I think it can be passed down generationally as well. If we're thinking about learned behavior, um, maybe those that have had it happen to them and this is how it was handled, that's just accepting kind of the culture and that 
Um, it's something that can't be combated. So I think with victim blaming, when it's not addressed and when it's just um, accepted or enabled, um, it just has this petri dish for sexual assaults to continue um, and not have any real accountability, which is what you talked about is when we victim blame, we don't address the problem. We place more barriers on the survivors, um, less barriers for the offender to where um, committing the offense again and again is more likely. So it's just gonna increase if we, if we don't address it. Absolutely. And I'd like to just lean in a little bit here too, um, just, just to kind of finish off our conversation about victim blaming. Um, what role does alcohol have when it comes to victim blaming? And um, are there any other examples you want to bring up too, as far as how it can look for different groups of people, like those within like BIPOC communities or those with disabilities, men or women? Just some more examples that are specific to different groups of people. And then if you want to comment a little bit about how alcohol might come into play here. I, I definitely think that inequities of how perpetrators and victims are treated continues as we kind of look into that role of alcohol. Um, because the aggressor is sometimes thought to be less responsible because they were drunk while the survivor is almost thought to be more responsible because they should have known that drinking too much alcohol could cause them to become incapacitated um, and they should have known that that could possibly be a side effect. Um, so, I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to students about the reality that their drinking choices are completely separate from any issues of sexual violence. Um, I think that's really an important clarification um, when we're trying to address this tendency to victim blame when alcohol is involved. Um, I talk to a lot of students about not treating sexual crimes any differently than other violent crimes. Um, I don't know if you've seen Blue Seat Studios has a wonderful series of videos that look at these issues. There's one called James is Dead in which they um, discuss the unfortunate murder of a student at a campus party. Um, and in the video, they ask questions like, well, what was the victim wearing? Or why did they go to that party alone? Didn't they know that possibly if they drank alcohol, they could be murdered? Um, so obviously they're kind of pulling in those um, rape myths and some of that victim blaming, but they're applying it to another crime. Um, so I, I really think that that's interesting when we're looking at alcohol, because there's an awful lot of other violent crimes that occur when alcohol is present, but we don't ask those same questions. We don't ask if they were consenting to murder. Um, so I, I really like that video and how it kind of pulls out the fact that while alcohol is commonly present in campus, you know, sexual violence incidents, it's a tactic of an aggressor. It's not, um, not the cause. That is such a good point. I love that video that you brought up because yeah, it's kind of pulling out the fact that this is what rape culture is, right? This is why, you know, we, you know, why is it that we only bring up alcohol as far as blaming the victim when it comes to things like sexual violence? And it's because we live in this culture that is perpetuating sexual violence and things like that. I think I'll talk about the alcohol and then the, the other forms after, but um, I think it is such an easy excuse that the those that want to blame the victim can really grasp onto to just solidify the belief that, again, it's their fault. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen the Minnesota Supreme Court ruling that recently came out where 
Um, they unanimously ruled the defendant couldn't be found guilty of rape because the woman got drunk voluntarily beforehand. So, I mean, this is very present right now in today's society that we're seeing that it's an enormous role when alcohol is involved um, where they can again just use it as a tool um, to place the blame on the victim rather like Heather said. It's um, a tactic or a manipulation um, for the offender just to have a successful um, victimization. It, alcohol makes um, those less resistant, memory lapse. So again, it's something that's easily used for an offender to perpetuate the violence, but yet we place all responsibility on the victim. And when we look at research into college students who do use alcohol as a tool or tactic um, to perpetuate or to inflict sexual violence on someone, they do it frequently. They have done it before. They do it again. So that notion that, you know, it's some misunderstanding or um, it was on the the victim um, to you know kind of keep up with how much alcohol is used. I think the research doesn't support that in terms of the way it's used um, as a tool of violence. That's such a good point. Um, and and yeah, we know that a lot of times we talk about like drug facilitated sexual assaults. And we, you know, in my trainings, I do go over like ketamine and GHB and liquid ecstasy and things like that. But then I always ask, do you think alcohol is a drug used to facilitate sexual assault. And sometimes, you know, people are like, ah, oh, it could be, but they never really think of it that way. And, and it's actually the most commonly used one. So I appreciate you both kind of highlighting this, um, it being used as a tool. And just want to uplift again, what you said, Heather, about how that is so interesting that alcohol from a societal point of view is both used to blame the victim and also um, excuse the perpetrator's behavior, which I never made, put those connections together, which just, I think that that is probably the, the epitome of rape culture right there. So I appreciate Absolutely. you bringing The that victim can't that. win in that situation, right? I mean, they've lost obviously, but they can't defend themselves in, with that viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that that's really important to highlight too. Um, I just wanted to see if you had any, do you think victim blaming can look specific compared to like different groups of individuals? Like, do you think that maybe victim blaming can look different for people with disabilities or women or men or those who are in BIPOC communities, things like that? Oh yeah, I mean, I think any type of privilege the offender has over the victim is going to be weaponized and blaming them. Um, you know, we've heard of corrective rape, right, for those that are in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, that's, we see that. We, um, we have a lot of trans clients where, um, you know, you're, you're openly out, you know, what did you expect kind of behavior and belief system. So again, just blaming them for living their authentic and open life. Um, and then they're victimized and then they're blamed for, for being that proud. Um, and I think that could be financial as well. If they're a big contributor, um, we've had, you know, um, whether it's they're in um, some stance of politics, they have some sort of wealth, 
Um, they're in high standing within the university in a perpetrator. I think that those all can be, again, just saying, well, you know, they, they're more credible is how it seemed. Um, this person is, is such uh, a high standing person in society. So how could they have done this to you? So again, kind of not believing the survivor when they're coming forward, using the disbelief on them. Um, so I would, I would say it's gonna be there for anybody that holds privilege, whether it's race, sex, economic standing. Um, we see religion come in as well. If it's a faith-based person that's offended, we've had that come up where, again, they hold these um, statuses with power or authority in a community, and, and that is always going to be used against the victim. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing up and highlighting all of that, Jessica. I think it's important to bring in intersectionality into any kind of conversation and how victim blaming can look a little different compared um, in different communities and things like that. You mentioned about the, you know, not believing survivors, which is another example of rape culture. Um, actually, eight out of 10 times a survivor knows the perpetrator and perhaps the survivor's friends do too. So with that, um, I think we talked a little bit about how some friend groups do take the side of the perpetrator sometimes. Um, what effects can this have on a survivor living on campus? Because this may be the first time they're away from their support systems. Oh, it, I mean, it can be incredibly hurtful and isolating. You know, the negative impact it can have on a survivor, um, it really can serve as a silencing mechanism um, for them not to want to share their narrative anymore. Um, if they're in an environment that breeds the culture um, where victim blaming is prevalent, um, where they're going to feel judged and perceived as responsible for what's happened to them, you know, they asked for it. It wasn't really rape. They didn't mean to, or you liked it. Um, those are common beliefs that are coming up when they're being reinforced that they're at fault for what's happened. So when we adapt to these rape myths, we're more likely to assume responsibility to the victim for the rape um, and may perceive the trauma associated with the rape as less severe or believable. Um, so that's gonna carry over to how they move forward, whether it's with not feeling confident going to law enforcement or notifying the school. Um, and even we see it with families, with friends. I've had clients where their partners, where they disclosed to partners and their partners didn't believe them and left them. Um, within the Greek organizations, their clubs. Um, so on top of having to survive the trauma, they're then, they're then left alone pretty much, which is very difficult. And what would you, what can a survivor do if they are unable to find support from their friends or loved ones? So for us, when, when we talk to our clients, um, we try and empower them and give them support that they've, they've been lacking from, from whether it's their parents not believing them, their friends. Um, so we talk to them about services. You know, we have us, which we support 24 seven, our clients. Um, we refer to y'all at VSC. Um, you guys are a great community support for them. Um, 
you know, support groups, there's counselors, there's other organizations um, to offer the support in their healing journey so that that isolation can, can feel less heavy. You know, they don't have to carry this by themselves. Um, there's a lot of support within the campus and the community for them. Yeah, I would add, um, I think a college campus is a really unique and special environment because there's so many people, staff and faculty wise, um, who are there to support students and want to play that role. Um, so whether it's a trusted faculty member or a student organization advisor or a counselor, um, I think there are a lot of safe people on campus for students um, to be able to kind of get support and, and share uh, their experiences. And I second what Jessica said about the Victim Service Center. You, are, you play an essential role for the Rollins College community as well in terms of, of support. Thank you so much. And, and I appreciate both of you kind of sharing those resources for survivors and letting them know that they're not alone. I wanted to ask, you know, why do you think we don't believe survivors or as a society, why do you think that there's this myth that survivors are lying when they do share that they have been sexually assaulted? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, again, our belief systems. I know we talked about this when we asked why is victim blaming a thing, and it's here, I think, just how you can have discriminative or prejudiced thoughts ourselves, right? Whether um, it's internalized or external, I think that we've grown up in a society and our culture that this is present and this is something that we see um, in our media, in our literature, uh, in, our, in our own cultures, in our friend groups. So where we get our messages from. So the same reason we're, we're doing this type of podcast and having this conversation is because we're trying to change that, that thought pattern. So I would say if we have a thought pattern of not believing those that come forward, it's because um, that, that belief that victims are not truthful or those, the just world where, well, what did you do to cause this to happen to you? Things like that are gonna come up in people's minds. And, and that's, that's the perspective they're looking at it, not from the perspective of we start by believing or um, I believe survivors, it's I need to prove to me that you're telling me the truth because I don't trust you. Um, that's kind of what, what comes to my mind. And it kind of, to me, comes back around to that patriarchal sort of um, you know, framework in our country. I think when we look way back at the, you know, the beginnings of America, um, you know, those rape myths, those uh, victim blaming tactics were used to keep women in line, to keep women from speaking out. Um, so I, I think that kind of some of those thoughts have just continued to evolve through our culture over time. We've definitely seen changes and differences, but I really think the root of a lot of this comes back to the kind of how we looked at gender roles at that point in our in our country's development. Yeah, it's always, thank you, Heather, it's always important to kind of bring back those, those historical context things as well, and kind of where we've come from too. I also wanted to ask you, Jessica, with your clients who um, may have unfortunately not been believed when they 
have disclosed. Did this ever lead to them maybe starting to doubt themselves and their own perception as well? Yeah, I mean, um, even even before, if it, if it wasn't even, their own beliefs are in it as well. You know, there's um, internalized, um, you know, people have internalized homophobia or internalized misogyny. So there are things in themselves that can even come into play when they're identifying as a victim or a survivor where maybe their own belief systems are challenging. Maybe their um, cultural belief or their religious beliefs tell them that their partner is welcome to their body at any time. Um, so I've seen that come up where they're struggling themselves with their beliefs in what has happened and identifying as a survivor. Um, but at the same time, like your initial question of when they come forward and they're not believed, um, that can be difficult because again, that is someone of authority questioning them and questioning their sense of reality. Um, so it's, it is making them doubt at times, I wouldn't say regularly, but we've seen it where, you know, is this really what has happened? If, if a police officer is telling me no crime occurred, then is what really happened what happened. Um, but they, they know most, most more, more times than not, they know what has happened to them. They are trusting their gut. They know how they're feeling and what happened was wrong. And that's really what they come back to is that, you know, even though they may not be able to do anything that route, I know what happened to me and I'm gonna move forward maybe just in my healing journey or a different route. Um, but it does, it just adds more stress. It can be re-traumatizing, re-victimizing for them. Um, so it can be a very difficult path that they have to move through. I think it's very isolating. Um, I'm sure Jessica has seen students as well who um, have even come forth and, and asked, do you think that this was assault? Um, and I, I really um, like what you said, Jessica, about encouraging people to listen to their inner voice um, and their gut, which is telling them that something happened. But sometimes people do need uh, another person to kind of validate that feeling. And we can only hope and pray that they go to somebody who is going to be able to validate and not kind of question them. Um, because yeah, to me, the trauma that occurs from being questioned um, really makes it more difficult to work through the emotions and work through the, the trauma. Absolutely, definitely trust your gut. If you think that a boundary has been crossed, it has. So definitely trust that. And I'm really glad that you know, the Title IX office at Rollins and Victim Services at UCF is there to start by believing and survivors have that safe space. So when they do come forward and share their stories, they're, they're supported. I also wanted to shift the gears a little bit here and see if we could talk a little bit about how party culture or Greek life can perpetuate rape culture. Do you think that it could? Yes, um, from, from my perspective here at UCF, um, we, we see alcohol and involved in sexual assaults here commonly. Um, now the distinction, right, is that alcohol does not cause the assaults. I think that we've been over that, but um, 
those who commit sexual assaults um, use that, that alcohol again as the tool. Um, it makes their victim more susceptible to, to what their end goal is. Um, so if we have party culture, Greek culture, alcohol is very saturated in that type of environment, um, it does make a very vulnerable atmosphere for those um, who are in them. Um, I do wanna say we of course have assaults here with no alcohol involved um, again, but you know, it can just encourage that type of victim mentality where, well, you were so drunk, you wanted it, or um, you, you knew this was a party, you knew there was gonna be alcohol, um, this is just part of Greek life and culture where it's so um, prevalent there that it again just kind of breeds this mentality that um, people drink often and people party and do these things here. Um, and that's just what's accepted. That's just what happens. Um, so I think it does play a, a role with, within rape culture, having that added culture of party life or, or Greek life where we see the parties. I would agree. I mean, I think among some social groups, there's even a specific intention to, we're gonna hold parties that involve consuming large amounts of alcohol, and there's gonna be a lot of sex at these parties too. So I think for some organizations, that is the mission, that is the goal, that is the intent to start with. Um, and then that really normalizes it, right? As you said, Jessica, like, so then people say, well, what did you expect from that party or from that group? Um, and that's definitely moving that, you know, responsibility to a victim when we, we normalize that way. Um, so within the Greek system specifically, I think at most universities and colleges, I think there's some uh, groups that, you know, definitely don't perpetuate rape culture. And I think that there are some that do um, through their customs or traditions, maybe toxic masculinity, if you're talking about fraternity. Um, and, you know, I know some campuses continually have incidents with the same groups over and over again, you know, over the years. Um, I spoke with some of the Rollins Violence peer educators kind of about their impression of Greek life in general, not just at Rollins, but, you know, just in their experience um, and the experiences of their friends. And they really felt like um, that accountability is key. And so I think that's a, a piece to talk about. Um, I think it is a problem because sometimes they put systems in place or an organization has rules in place, but then when an incident occurs, the follow-up is not there, the accountability is not there. Um, and I know, you know, even at some large institutions, alumni might even be playing a significant role within the accountability um, of a particular organization too. So I think it gets complicated, um, but that definitely there's some organizations that continually perpetuate the rape culture. I appreciate you bringing up that complicated kind of structure of the organizations and, and the accountability piece to it. Uh, definitely didn't think of it that way before, like the alums kind of background too. That makes a lot of sense. And I just wanted to highlight too and uplift the idea of, you know, always important to talk about consent here because you both kind of brought up this idea of, you know, with party culture. It's like, well, what did you think was going to happen? You know, and I just want to always say that you were consenting to go to a party and that's it. 
you were consenting to get a drink and that's it. You were consenting to maybe even go into someone's room and that's it. That doesn't mean that you consented to sex. And maybe you did start um, a person or a student maybe um, was going and then they decided, you know, I, I want to back out of this. I don't feel comfortable. You know, consent has to be continual. It's a conversation. It should be informed and you can't consent if you're under the influence. So just want to highlight that consent has to look that way. And so I think that you're right there. There's a whole nother system of victim blaming because of this party culture, this idea that, oh, if you went, what did you expect to happen? But I'm just just wanted to once again share, you know, can't bring up consent enough, essentially. Um, but yeah. Students struggle with consent and alcohol. I mean, every presentation I've done from the beginning when I started in sexual violence prevention up until today, it's kind of a common constant theme. Um, and I really think we have to give space for those discussions because to me, you know, it's pretty clear cut, but I think for our students, um, there's a lot of work to do around that area because I think people sometimes justify sexually aggressive behaviors with alcohol as we spoke to earlier. Definitely, definitely. And I wanted to also bring up another example of rape culture, which is believing that sexual assault only happens to women or between strangers. So what is the typical script, uh, so to speak, and I'm doing air quotes on a podcast, but what is the typical script of a college sexual assault? You know, I think if, if we, I think we already have it in our head um, when you think about it, you know, it's, it's some woman out at night by yourself and someone there, you know, um, coming out, um, where again, that's just the, the myths that come with, with this. And that's just not the reality that happens. We know it's somebody that someone knows where they have some sort of trust instilled in a relationship with them. Um, so as far as you know, a typical one, it's, it's tough to say what the average one looks like because it's so unique and diversified where you know, it's a relative it's a partner's friend, it's your partner, it's um, somebody in your, your organization, it's a classmate. Um, so I think that we have this envision of, of what we think it is and that can be so damaging when they come forward because when it doesn't fit that idea, again, it, they're met with that disbelief of, well, this, this isn't how I was told or taught that this would look like. So with this being different, I'm, I'm questioning if this is real. I would agree. I do think though, as a culture, we're really making some strides in this area um, where people are starting to recognize that it isn't just the stranger on the street. So I, I'm pleased to see we're making some headway, but I, I definitely agree with Jessica that the, the conversation has to continue um, and you know, addressing um, what it actually does look like. Uh, because I do think that it's hard for people to kind of make sense of it um, when their experience is so different than what they had heard or they expected. Yeah, I think that expectation piece is so important. And that's why, you know, we're here to normalize the conversation and, and understand it more so that when a survivor does disclose to us and share what happened to them, 
we will understand that sexual violence can occur within and without relationships and things like that. Well, you know, when we were planning this podcast, we talked about the, again, air quotes here, the perfect victim, right? So can you speak a little bit to that and the harm that it can do? I think what, when, when we think of that, it's the perfect victim, right, is easy is not right the the term for it but um when i think those in the field it's they notified they called the police right away right away they're very forthcoming they're very cooperative they're very emotional right they're responding in a way that we think is appropriate for what's happened um and not only that but they probably are young attractive they're probably the majority, right? Whether it's a Caucasian person who speaks English, but it's somebody that fits that mold that's been developed through the media or um, how we've been told that victims should be like or what they look like. Um, and that can be damaging because we know, again, that's that's not what happens. It's not somebody who's wanting to know talk about it again and call the police right away if they ever do. Um, again, it can happen to anybody. Um, and if we think really about service providers in this field, right, there's trauma-informed care, which lets us know that there has to be training around this because it has to combat how things are being done in the first place so that um, we have people that are trained to know that trauma affects everyone differently that it affects how memories are recalled, that if a victim or survivor cannot tell you chronologically what has happened, that's normal for them when they're, when they're processing what has happened. Um, so I think that's really how it can be damaging is, again, when it's somebody that doesn't meet that definition for a perfect victim, um, there can be obstacles then that they have to overcome because um, it's out of the status quo for, for the service providers. I appreciate you and bringing this up, Jessica, about how there's multiple different ways that people react to things like trauma, and then it's so diverse. So not only does, it, does sexual assault not discriminate by any means based on gender or race or ethnicity um, or age, but it also is important for us to highlight that it, you know, the reactions to trauma can be so diverse too. And then a, a healing journey for a survivor can be so diverse as well. So we have mentioned many times before on this podcast that sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes. So what are some barriers to reporting that survivors specifically on college campuses may experience? So I think we've covered a few of them. Um, the most common one I hear when, when I work with clients um, is that they're not gonna be believed. It's the biggest one. They don't think they're, that it'll be taken seriously. They don't think um, that they'll be believed. Um, the next one I hear most is they're scared of retaliation. That's a very big one as far as um, overcoming the fear of telling somebody what happened, but the next part is how am I gonna stay safe after I notify somebody? Um, and then specifically, 
here on campus, you know, it's it's a process um, to go through the legal system, to go through the Title IX reporting process. Um, not all of our students are open to that. Um, they're here with us a limited time. So I think that that also is a consideration for them when they think of reporting, whether it's through the police or through the Title IX. Um, and then, you know, UCF is a big campus, but a lot of times they're ingrained in their social circles with these people. Maybe they're in Greek together, maybe they're in the same major. Um, so those concerns come up is just coming to the realization that this isn't just a one and done thing, that this is something that they're gonna have to continue to move through in a lot of grief as far as what their life looked like before it happened and now how they're gonna move forward with what's happened after. I would agree. Um, and Rollins College is kind of the opposite of UCF being such a small campus, um, you know, in the range of around 3,000 or 3,200 undergraduate students typically. So I think that is a concern of survivors um, reporting that it is the smaller environment and most students know each other. So that definitely can be a barrier. Um, I think another barrier is um, when alcohol is present, as we talked about earlier, that students are concerned if they're going to get into trouble um, if they were using alcohol. Um, I know at Rollins, we do have an amnesty policy. So we encourage students, no matter the situation, whether there's sexual violence um, present or not, or it's just you're worried about your friend that had too much to drink, um, that we do have an amnesty policy that encourages students to obviously seek help for themselves and their friends, you know, in situations that are, where there's potential harm or harm has occurred, um, they will not get in trouble for that. That's always important to bring up. Absolutely. I know that that's, that was the case on my college campus where I got my undergrad. I just wanted to check, Jessica, is that, is that the same over at UCF? I believe so. This concern has come up a few times that I can think of. Um, and I've never had anyone have, have an issue with it um, when coming forward. Our officials at school and within the police department are more focused that a sexual assault has happened um, and are not concerned with the underage component of it, especially because like we talked about, um, that can be seen as a tool within the assault. Um, so that's something that when, when it's come up, we've, we've talked about the school not focusing on that because they're focusing on really um, the, bigger, the bigger issue, which is the sexual assault. I agree, but I think unfortunately, sometimes students focus on it and we just try to talk about it. So we, because we don't want it to be a barrier, we don't want that to be a reason why somebody um, doesn't come forward. Definitely, and you know, we were talking a little bit about how healing can look different for everyone. So what other options do survivors have beyond reporting to the police? So for us, um, we do have Title IX on campus, which is separate from law enforcement, which that alone I think can be really overwhelming for students. Um, there's just so many different avenues that they can take. Um, but that would be reporting to the school for an investigation to see if they can hold the student accountable. Um, there's also the civil process. We've had past clients um, go through that. Um, 
we've had clients go to the media. That's something that they would much rather rather do, um, speak to a reporter. Um, and then we've had just some a great advocacy and activism come from past clients where they've used just creative outlets, whether it's poems, art, writing, journalism, even podcasts, we've seen that. Um, so there's a lot of different paths that they can take without reporting to police, because that's not on everyone's path. And, and that's okay, they should have the right to decide what's best for them. It's kind of similar at Rollins as well. I mean, students can make a formal uh, report through the Office of Title IX or even just provide an informational report. Um, but a benefit of students going through Title IX at Rollins is that there's a lot of accommodations, support, and help that can be provided to the students. So they're not even required to give um, the perpetrator's name. They only have to give as much information as they feel comfortable with. Um, but maybe they need a letter of support to a faculty member, or maybe they need a housing change um, because that perpetrator lives in their building or on their floor. Um, maybe they need a non-contact or something like that. So, um, you know, I, I do think there's a lot that the university can do to support uh, students as well. Um, at Rollins, we don't have um, uniformed officers um, like UCF, so we work through the Winter Park Police Department. So I think that it, it's great that students can use campus resources to get those accommodations. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for sharing those resources, as well as the different options that survivors have as far as, you know, their healing journeys. And, and I hope that whoever's listening um, knows that they have so many different options and there's no right way to, to do it. Only you know what's right and best for you. So with that, I, I wanted to also ask a question kind of related to college campuses in general. So how do colleges actually address sexual assault on campus? And what is it like to be a survivor of sexual violence on as a college student? What do they have to endure after the assault? Well, I would say um, in terms of, you know, addressing or preventing sexual assault, uh, the most successful successful approaches are going to be multi-dimensional. So um, at Rollins, for instance, I'm one person um, who specifically uh, works on prevention, but I can't, you know, prevent it on the whole campus. So it really has to be a campus-wide multi-dimensional approach, starting with a strong policy um, and support from the administration, and then kind of working down from there. Uh, ensuring that, you know, there's a space for community discussion about what are the cultural norms going to be, especially at a school like Rollins that's smaller. Um, you know, really, uh, we can have those types of discussions with faculty, staff, and students and try to come up with community solutions um, to addressing, you know, the issue, issue of sexual violence. Also, I think ongoing training, uh, Rollins really does a fantastic job at this, you know, new employees have to go through training. All students have to go through several hours of sexual violence prevention training um, as well. So really making sure that we have staff too that are trusted resources for students and know how to handle a disclosure in the most empathetic and supportive way possible. Um, student staff too, we see um, being a really important group and a way that we can both work um, prevention as well as advocacy um, because they're living in housing. Um, at Rollins, students have to live on campus for three years um, at a minimum. And so um, that would also probably address your other question of, of what is it like? I think it is a challenge at Rollins if you are a survivor. 
um, because you are living and working and spending almost all of your time in this kind of small community. Um, and that might in, you know, include your perpetrator um, as well. So that definitely can be a challenge, but it also um, I think is a positive in that you always have support around you and there's always people um, to work on it. So uh, really, you know, I think it takes different types of approaches, whether it's social media, whether it's education, whether it's peer education, which I think also is an important piece of this, um, students talking to students. Um, we currently at Rollins are taking applications for student peer educators and someone said in their application, we need a program where it's not adults talking to students. Um, and I thought that was, you know, an interesting summary um, kind of of how they view it. Um, so uh, really that the student import is important. And then the last piece I would say is bystander intervention. Um, we don't have a whole lot of good research on preventing sexual violence on college campuses in terms of having large scientific studies that can tell us exactly what to do. Um, but one um, such, I think, intervention that um, is supported by researcher by research is the bystander intervention approach. Uh, so definitely, I think that that's how a lot of college campuses now are are focusing in on on that. Um, is that true prevention? You know, it's a type of prevention. The the true way to prevent is to stop perpetrators from perpetrating crimes. Um, but we can use bystander intervention um, as one one targeted approach. Wow, Heather. Yeah, I echo everything Heather said. Um... We, I think, also try and do here at UCF, we have our no tolerance policy. Um, so right now it's the Let's Be Clear campaign, which is some offices that are involved with um, supporting those that have been victimized. And um, they're on our, but the Let's Be Clear campaign is um, basically advertising and it's creating a culture that stalking, sexual assaults, um, intimate partner violence, all of that is, is not acceptable. And, it's on our, our buses and the bathrooms, it's put up. So again, it's kind of marketing, trying to change that culture here. Um, our Title IX office, similar to what Heather said, has that no contact order, remedial measures. Um, we have bystander intervention here as well through Green Dot. We have counseling, we have the CARES office, which offers an umbrella of support for, for students. Um, we do events to raise awareness and education for prevention and training. So um, I think it is just really looking at all facets and how we can um, work as a campus collectively to change the culture here that sexual assault is just not tolerated um, and that we support those that are affected by it. And I think that really speaks to the hard work um, of campus professionals. Because um, it was not too long ago that universities would not even admit that they had a problem. They wouldn't even admit that assaults were occurring. Um, I know in, in, when I was working in a larger university, even getting um, a reporting form was a very hotly contested topic um, because that would be public information. So we really have, I think, moved pretty far along the spectrum um, in terms of college campuses uh, addressing and acknowledging the need um, for all these things that Jessica and I have been talking about. Yeah, I, I wanted to actually highlight that as well, as far as I think that there is kind of been a shift and it, it's so great to hear all these amazing resources and the support at both UCF and Rollins. 
Uh, it definitely brings like a, a light at the end of the end of this tunnel here that we've been talking about. I was actually a peer educator at my college for a two-hour seminar for uh, first year campus acquaintance rape education or FICARE. care. So I did that at the University of Illinois in Champaign Urbana. I'm not sure if anyone from Illinois is listening, but but yeah, I I wanted to also. S- share that while I was doing that, I only did it for like two or three years, but I did see already a shift in the culture. When I first started, I would, you know, bring up rape culture or do you know what victim blaming is? And I remember kind of seeing blank stares of like people not sure. But then by the end, when I was leaving, everyone was like, yep, I know what that is. And and they, they knew. So it was already kind of this shift was happening. So definitely, I think education is super important. What would you argue? And, and just to kind of like round out this conversation here, what do you think is the root of rape culture? I, I would say one word and sexism. I would agree. I mean, my one word uh, would be oppression. Um, you know, along the same lines. That's definitely the root cause, I believe, of sexual violence and then that kind of culture that we're talking about that works to support this oppression. Definitely, I I agree there. I think that when we talk about violence at all, it's definitely that power and control and oppression is just part of that. And so is sexism, right? It's really coming down to one group of people uh, exercising power over another and vice versa. Um, And then with that, I know we talked a lot about how we can combat rape culture, but I don't know if you had anything specific that you wanted to share as far as how, you know, everyone listening can do something as far as combating and fighting against rape culture to help prevent things like sexual violence. Yeah, I mean... You can, you yourself, try and create a culture for enthusiastic consent, right? I think that's something, especially in Florida, with it being abstinent only, I think that a lot of sex education has to come from initiative from somebody. Um, So I think that's something, um, speak out, right? Be an advocate. We talk about sexism and oppression here. So um, also, which we kind of already have touched on this, but the redefining for those those gender norms and those gender stereotypes for masculinity and femininity. And I think this generation is really kind of championing that, um, which is exciting to watch. And stop victim blaming. Um, I think that's a big one as far as when it comes into how our language is used within our culture. Um, you know, I think that there's there's so many actions that can be taken for it, which can make it seem overwhelming. Um, but just in this step and listening to this podcast, I think they're taking a step to combat it. Um, and, and listening to survivors and believing survivors, I think is another one that, that needs to be held tightly to everyone's chest. I agree with Jessica. Um, you know, I, I talk with students a lot about their language and thinking about Um, What slang terms do they use? How do they describe people? Um, You know, people often will bring up, you know, terms like slut and other things like that, um, not realizing how harmful some of the language that we use about just sex in general or sexuality in general. Um, So I I really think that we need to, to think about anything that we're saying that objectifies or degrades women or 
air quotes, as you like to say, Emily, jokes um, about that. And then I totally agree with Jessica that I think speaking out on a college campus plays a huge role. And I think that students underestimate that role of speaking out. Um, when someone is saying or doing something you disagree with, um, I really believe that you're not the only one that disagrees. You're not the only one that's concerned. Um, so be that person who steps up and be that person that starts the conversation. Because I think um, oftentimes other people will step up with you if you, you know, take that chance and be the first brave, courageous person. And that's a way of being an active bystander too, right? And and we didn't really talk about statistics, but the statistics that I share are, you know, one in five women and one in 16 men will experience sexual violence during their college career. And so with that, if you do see kind of a rape joke happening or, or anything like that, where they're trivializing sexual assault, it could be within that group that you're even talking to, there could be a survivor right? It's very likely that that's the case. So not only would you be combating rape culture, but you might be making a world of a difference for that survivor to make them feel more safe too, and advocating for them. Um, with that, what would you say to someone who thinks rape culture is just a part of college life and is something that we can't combat or change? I, I would say one person can make a difference in the world and, and who they are and, and what they do truly matters. To me, this statement says that they're just overwhelmed by this problem and, and therefore it's better to just accept it. And I disagree wholeheartedly. I can look at our history and those who have overcome oppression and violence um, before us and even today we're seeing it. So I would ask them, I would invite them to join us and walk with us on the objective, objection of rape culture. I would welcome them. I totally agree. Um, I really think that that's just a reaction to being frustrated, overwhelmed, and not knowing what to do. Um, but especially our students, as I said before, they are setting the culture and the environment of their campus. Um, they have so much power. So just being able to take one step to, to join a group, as she said, or just to speak with friends. I mean, there's so many small ways that we can you know, make, take steps towards solving this problem as well as the, the larger steps. I love it. I love everything that you both are saying. And, you know, I think that that's a wonderful place to sign off. But before I do, is there anything that you would like to add that we may not have addressed as it pertains to rape culture on college campus? If there's anything that you want to share to any survivors that are listening, things like that? Um, just, just thank you to the listeners. I think just by listening, they're taking a step and and removing, you know, one of the pebbles that are on top of this mountain that we're working we're working on as it comes to rape culture. And um, if to any survivors, you know, we all believe you. We want to support you. You did not deserve what had happened to you. And you know, services are out there for support. We just need uh, you to make that first step. I would agree. And thank you, Emily, for um, bringing up this topic. I, I do think it's one that we often don't get to. Um, it's kind of a deeper dive into looking at sexual violence on college campuses. Um, so I hope everyone listening kind of has a better understanding um, of some of the rape myths and some of the factors that contribute to, to rape culture. Absolutely. And I just want to thank the listener as well uh, for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. 
The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Heather and Jessica for joining me today. Thank you.